0: Kelly, guess what? What, Josh? I got you something.
1: You got me something?
0: Yes, a present. What do you think it is?
1: Um, I don't know if you're trying to trick me.
0: Do you want a hint? Yeah, yeah, I do. All right. It's a cup with a photo. You want to know what I call that? Is it a is it a mugshot? A mugshot, yeah. <laughs> guess what mugshot it is, though. I have to guess that it's the Donald Trump mugshot. It's a mugshot on a mug, because I know how much you like coffee. Oh, I do love coffee. I got you a mug shot,
1: <laughs> And then I should pour an actual shot into the mug, so it's a mug, mugshot,
0: shot. Oh my gosh, mind blown. <laughs> Are you mad at me for uh, spending money and contributing to... The Trumpsters campaign. Oh, did you buy it from him? Is there another place to buy it from? You
1: can buy that type of shit on Etsy or whatever. You don't have to give money to the Trump campaign.
0: Mm, but then it's not authentic. Okay. Debate podcast. Here's a debate question for you. Uh-huh. If you could only buy this mugshot from Donald Trump, it's funny as hell to have that up somewhere displayed and remember how mad he was. But... Then the money goes to him. Would you do it or would you not do it? I would not do it. Oh, but it's so good to just see how angry he is. And you could look at it anytime you wanted.
1: I really don't like looking at his face, even if it is kind of delicious to know that he finally got a mugshot taken
0: for all of the indictments that he's had. Uh, It's kind of crazy. Do you actually know how much he's made off of uh, merchandising this mugshot?
1: I imagine it's quite a bit. He's been using the whole Joe Biden's Justice Department is out to get me to campaign for like a year now,
0: at least. Yeah. Seven million dollars. Wild. Stupid. Maybe I should like incite an insurrection or something so I could make seven million dollars, too.
1: I think you have to cultivate an entire block of devotees who've lost all sense of self-preservation first in order to do anything quite as
0: monumental as january 6th was wait how many listeners do we have here again it's not insurrection numbers yet damn it step up your game share rate subscribe tell your friends indubitably this is all
1: so that josh can have his cult of personality and then make money off of his eventual
0: mugshot my mugshot mug yeah Tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to incubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. To be fair, we should probably point out that Donald Trump has not been convicted yet of these crimes.
1: Yet. He's got so many charges going up against him. He's probably going to get some convictions, even if he doesn't end up serving any
0: actual jail time. Just the law of large numbers. The odds are not in his favor. If every charge stuck and he got the maximum penalty,
1: he's facing like 600 years in prison.
0: Yeah, I, I can't see him serving jail time, but it does pose kind of an interesting question. He's got $7 million from the sale of just. This one mugshot, if he were convicted, should he have to give that money back?
1: Probably not, just because of the unique relationship that he and his supporters have where getting convicted is just proof of a larger conspiracy, not a not a failing of him on like an ethical or legal level. This is a very unique group of people who will give him money, no matter what, right?
0: Yeah, I also think it's interesting in this case because the money technically. Uh, although I'm sure he'll find a way to siphon some of it off, but technically is not going to Donald Trump. It's going to his campaign. So it's a fundraiser, not necessarily like a sale.
1: Sure. But I mean, we all know that his campaign is probably finding lots of ways to keep him happy with like premium private jet flights and all the Big Macs he
0: can eat and expenses
1: costs. Yeah. Necessary business. Business purchases.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Donald Trump might be a unique case for multiple reasons, but you know, there is actually precedent that suggests that criminals, convicted criminals, should not be allowed to profit off of their crimes. And these are referred to as Son of Sam laws.
1: So I'm assuming that they
0: earned that moniker
1: specifically because of the criminal known as Son of Sam. Right.
0: Yeah, he was the first. This was David Berkowitz, who lovingly referred to himself as son of Sam. Ooh, pop quiz. Do you know who Sam is? It's his neighbor's dog. (laughs) Yeah. So David Berkowitz, who is a fucking character, committed six murders, attempted seven more. And I guess now it's kind of a meme in whodunit movies. But pretty stereotypically would send letters and whatnot to the police, mocking them because they couldn't catch him. and in one of the letters he said that he was ordered to commit these crimes, and after he was caught, he doubled down on this for a bit. He was ordered to commit these crimes by a demon who had possessed his neighbor's dog, Sam.
1: You can't prove that didn't happen.
0: that's true. <laughs> Later on, he admitted that he was full of crap but he he held to the story for a while
1: yeah he seemed to relish in the uh, attention that was paid to him the sensationalism that surrounded the crimes themselves and they were pretty noteworthy at the time i mean he had an entire city living in fear Mm -hmm. Uh, women were getting haircuts because he was targeting women with longer hair and it became very prevalent for a lot of women to cut all their hair off to avoid being targets,
0: yeah. And you could just tell that that sort of attention, maybe more so than whatever twisted motivation lay behind the act of murder itself, the attention might have kept him going more than anything. Mm-hmm. So you've got this wild guy, pretty crazy story. Media is already all over him. And so you can only imagine that after he was convicted, Publishers were offering Berkowitz deals, book deals, the rights to his story. And so, because of that, the New York State legislature passed the first Son of Sam law to try and prevent him from making money off of all of the horrible stuff he did and all of the fear that he had mongered.
1: Does making money seem to have been a motivation for him, or was he more in it for having notoriety?
0: I'm sure as it was happening, it was the notoriety. But then after the fact, when he was caught, nobody's going to say no to a million dollar book deal that is going to further spread the story.
1: You can buy a lot of ramen in the uh, prison commissary with a million dollar book deal.
0: <laughs> that is that is true. Any flavor you want. The problem is, though, that this son of Sam Law, not for Berkowitz, but eventually the son of Sam Law and Subsequent laws that other states passed mirroring it were struck down by the Supreme Court who said that they violated the First Amendment rights of freedom of expression.
1: He's still able to publish a book. He's just not able to profit off of it if the Son of Sam laws held up. Is he really being restricted in speech if he can't make money off of it?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I suppose that if you put something out there and people want to consume it and they want are willing to pay to consume it somewhere in there. The, the money is tied up in the concept of free speech, at least again, according to the Supreme Court. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, but that's what they said.
1: We have talked about it in a previous episode, how the Supreme Court has held that money is an expression of speech. So perhaps, yeah, being able to profit off of your speech is an integral component A free speech.
0: Mm. Well, again, the Supreme Court certainly seems to think so. And so we do currently still have Son of Sam laws on the books, but they've been modified, which we'll talk about in a second. But before we get to that, I just kind of like this. The David Berkowitz story is not over yet, Kelly. Is he still alive? He is still alive. And this guy was convicted in 1978. But in 2006, and this is kind of to your point, can you talk without making money? Is that considered free speech? In 2006, he released a book entitled Son of Hope. So maybe the neighbor's cat was named Hope. Son of Hope, the prison journals of David Berkowitz. Son of Hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently the son of Sam serial killer is an evangelical Christian now. So I guess the demon dog stopped talking to him. And was replaced with the voice in the sky. It
1: happens that uh, people who've done heinous things find religion when they're locked up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially it's it's been over thirty years, and he has repented, found religion, and to be clear, he is still not receiving any royalties or profit from the sales of his work. So was not able to take any of these publisher deals 30 years ago when he was son of Sam. And now that he has evolved into the son of hope is still not making money off of the work. Although, to be clear, uh, we did try and do a little bit of research on this and uh, we weren't able to find if it was voluntary that he is not taking profit from this new book or if this is still under the umbrella of the son of Sam laws.
1: Yeah, maybe he's just a good person now.
0: Mm -hmm. Son of hope.
1: I mean, prison is supposed to potentially reform people, so.
0: (laughs) Well, this particular law in New York City, just the city, between 1977 and 1990 was invoked 11 times. And probably the most famous time was against Mark David Chapman. Does that name sound familiar? Oh, absolutely. Tell us, Kelly, who is it?
1: He killed John Lennon um, just outside of his building, which
0: is the Dakota, in uh, what,
1: 1980, 1981?
0: Mm. And okay, here's one, Kelly. I don't think you're going to get this one. What is the connection between our podcast and that fact that you just gave us?
1: The last time you asked me this, it was to do with our cover photo on the podcast. I'm guessing that's, in this case as well, something that is a detail on our photo that I haven't noticed.
0: (laughs) Damn it. You're cheating. That is exactly it. On the the right-hand side (laughs) of our covered photo, we have Beatle John Lennon slain, shot down outside New York apartment.
1: I'm going to ask you a pop quiz question about this. What book inspired the murder, or at least inspired Mark David Chapman to like do some weird shit prior to the murder?
0: If I say the Bible, is that just like taking Jaded to a whole new level? Yeah,
1: I mean it's on on brand for you, but it's not the Bible. Um,
0: Alice in Wonderland. I don't know.
1: No, it's Catcher in the Rye.
0: Okay, what's the connection?
1: He kind of repeats the day that Holden Caulfield has he even seeks the services of a sex worker, and I believe was wearing the the sex worker was wearing the same dress as the one that was in the book, and he felt it was like prophetic and like further justified the. Uh, antisocial actions that he was taking that led to the death of john lennon
0: Hmm. well that sounds like it would make an interesting book wouldn't it too bad he can't (laughs) profit off of it
1: no i think he's put out some music too but on that note this law keeps getting invoked but you said that the law was struck down what's the situation right now
0: (laughs) so, yeah, the original law was struck down, and that law was, I suppose, on a criminal level, just prohibited people from making money off of their works that were tied to the crimes that they'd committed. So in 2001, in response to the Supreme Court, because people were still pretty set on the idea that it's messed up to be able to make money off of the crimes you've committed, which seems reasonable, uh, in 2001, a new Son of Sam law was introduced. and. This one has kind of been copied to a certain extent in 45 U.S. states as of now. So the new son of Sam laws take this form. When a person convicted of a crime receives $10,000 or more from any source for publishing, creating art, scripts, movies, etc. for that crime, the victims have to be notified and they then have an extended amount of time to sue the criminal in question. So these are also referred to besides son of sam as notoriety for profit laws.
1: So if you want to commit a crime and still be able to make money off of it, do your research and see which five states do not currently have a law like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, but we're not going to provide you that information.
1: No, we're not encouraging that kind of behavior. We're just saying like, you know, Think about it. (laughs) Um,
0: And then recently, the law was invoked in the German heiress fraud scheme case of Anna Delvey, saying that she shouldn't be paid by Netflix for their television series that was based on her life called Inventing Anna. Have you seen that one?
1: I have not, but she is taking this entire post-conviction I don't know, circus and doing whatever she can to continually get attention and I'm assuming money off of it. She like shows off her ankle bracelet. She has turned her home in New York where she's essentially under house arrest into something of a modern salon and she's got all these like famous people showing up and she has like art shows there. It's fucking wild. She's learned nothing.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. It also seems like it must be hard given the the new form that these son of Sam laws take where you notify victims and allow them to sue in a case like that, where she's just committed fraud against, you know, everybody, how exactly that would play out.
1: So it may be hard to determine exactly who is a victim in that case, but that would be a matter essentially of the courts to decide who has standing, especially if it's a civil issue instead of a criminal one. So probably it gets determined on a case by case basis in that event.
0: Yeah, it seems that shifting these laws away from criminal procedures over to civil is how the courts or the governments are circumventing the First Amendment issue. You can publish whatever you want. You can get paid whatever you can, but then people can sue you to try and take all of it. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, and this sounds a lot like the OJ trial, right, where criminal law failed, so the victims turned to civil courts.
1: Right. OJ was determined to be not guilty criminally, but then uh, there's a lower threshold to prove who is responsible for an outcome in civil court than there is in criminal court. He was found to be liable in civil court for the deaths of his alleged victims. Are we still using the term alleged?
0: <sighs> yeah. I mean, whatever. He did it. <laughs> and I, I mean, yeah. Ironically, this is another instance where a criminal question mark tried to cash in on their tellings of the crimes that they may or may not have committed oj wrote a book titled if i did it explaining how he would have
1: you know it's just a thought exercise he's not actually a criminal because he was not convicted in criminal court
0: yeah <laughs> and this is an interesting one actually so the way that this played out was ron goldman the the father of oj's Ex-wife's new boyfriend started a petition called the Don't Pay OJ movement, which convinced OJ's publishers to pull the book from the shelf. So OJ tries to publish a book, and then that book gets pulled. And then Ron Goldman's father sues OJ and by the courts is given the rights to the book. And in a (laughs) fit of passive aggressiveness, that I'm sure you can appreciate, Kelly. He changed the title, If I Did It, to If I Did It, Confessions of a Killer.
1: I'm looking up right now to see if Fred Goldman
0: is a Scorpio.
1: No, he's a Sagittarius,
0: which is almost as bad. And then while you're looking stuff up, if you look at the new cover of the book, the word if in If I Did It, is real, real small and hidden in the eye of I. And so at first glance, it very much looks like I did it. Confessions of a Killer. We
1: stand a petty king.
0: (laughs) Anyway, but good for them. You know what? Like, Like, fuck OJ. Basically, if you believe that this guy murdered your son and then is trying to write a book to profit off of it, I'd be petty too. Oh, 100%. Here's where this gets interesting, though. So Ron Goldman's father is given the rights to the book. He publishes it and is now making money off of OJ, which feels right. But remember, there was another victim. And Nicole Brown's family actually sued the Goldmans to stop the publication of the book. And their lawsuit was unsuccessful. So the book was allowed to to stay published.
1: It's kind of understandable why the book was allowed to exist especially because if it's framed as being like a hypothetical, it does not necessarily constitute the telling or retelling of an actual crime because it's, you know, all conjecture wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I didn't actually do it, but if I did, here's the knife I would use. And then on like free speech grounds, that also seems to be something that would be difficult to prevent. But it also, it does feel kind of gross that the family of a victim doesn't have control over the narrative
0: well that's that's the problem here and we'll we'll talk about it in a second but there's two families of two victims and they're the ones in disagreement at this point so it's no longer victim versus criminal it's it's victim versus victim and that you know the victim is the number one argument for the son of sam laws When somebody is able to tell their story or their family member's story and what happened, it re-victimizes them and you make profit off of that and that seems horrible. That, at, at its core, is the easiest argument for why this shouldn't be allowed.
1: There are some gray areas about who actually owns the story, though, even though it feels like the victim's and rightfully so have ownership over the story to an extent the criminal does as well. The perpetrator of it owns part of the story, at least because they are the cause of the story um, and and contributed to it quite a bit.
0: Well, and I'm, I'm sure they have their side of it just because they were found guilty in court doesn't necessarily mean that they agree with that. And this might be where that whole concept of freedom of speech and First Amendment rights comes from is just because the law says that you're guilty of a thing, you don't necessarily have to agree with it, and you should still be able to speak on it however you want. Speak on it, sure. But turn a profit on it,
1: maybe, maybe not.
0: And I think like as a debate podcast, we should appreciate every story has two sides. But the problem here is, if we're asking the question of who owns the story, um, the fact that a lot of times the victim's by definition, of some of these more horrible crimes aren't around anymore. And so their say is completely removed from any retelling of the happenings, and it leaves just the criminal to try and convince us, hey, this is how it went down, or I don't know how it went down because I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, Seems a little bit convenient for them, and maybe something where we need to step in.
1: Another incentive to murder, to control a narrative completely.
0: (laughs) Okay, Putin. <laughs> hey. He would have some interesting memoirs, just saying. I bet he's keeping journals. We'll find out after he gets arrested by the Hague. <laughs> oh, so like the Tuesday after never. <laughs> but if we're here to protect the victims, let's go through the examples that we've talked about so far. If our goal is to protect the victims, then why does it matter whether it's the criminal who's retelling the story? In this case, why should anybody be able to profit from the retelling of a crime Uh, we asked this question in the true crime episode that we did i think a long time ago now but if, if this sort of thing interests you go back through the archives and look that up let's say the example we brought up with um inventing anna why is it okay for netflix to be able to profit you know they didn't commit the crime but if our concern is not like vengeance or or justice or anything like that, if our concern is protecting victims, why should a third party be able to have the freedom of speech to make money off of a story like this?
1: Well, because if you start to restrict the speech of media corporations when it comes to telling their version of real events, then you start to get into fuzzy territories about where you draw the line. For them and it becomes too much of an encroachment now that's the like legal part of that but i I think we're still able to feel that it is ethically icky for a company to make money off of somebody else's pain and trauma
0: yeah i do think that we cover this pretty extensively in the true crime episode so for a more complete discussion around this listen to that but at least in terms of today, I think it's worth noting that the trauma that exists to families, survivors, and victims to rehear the telling of the stories is going to be mm, arguably the same. Whether it's done by Amazon Prime or done by OJ Simpson, maybe it hurts a little bit more to know that the criminal is is profiting off of it. I, I
1: disagree. Thinking about if I were in a situation where somebody was telling a story without my ability to prevent it or my involvement, I would feel worse if it was a story told by the person who had done the harm against me because I think they have a greater incentive to represent things in a way that is favorable to them where I could at least hope that if Netflix is telling the story, they don't have an agenda as far as who to portray in the best light. Their biggest agenda is like the profit motive. So whatever is the most interesting and and whatnot. But there's a manipulative aspect, I feel, when you have like the OJs of the world taking ownership of a story that they created and re-traumatizing people in a way that other parties probably can't. It still sucks for people, but I think it sucks more if the criminal is the one doing it. Mm,
0: That's true. And the criminal is also probably much more likely to make themselves the hero of the story. And the victims are um, NPCs, non-player characters for our less nerdy listeners. Basically, the mindless computer bots that run around just doing their thing.
1: Yeah, they're accessories. They're not integral parts of the story. The criminal, the perpetrator is.
0: Let's take the example that we brought up earlier. Because if anybody has the right to tell the story, it's going to be the victim. But in the OJ case, the Goldmans wanted the story told. Maybe they felt as though they deserved recompense for the crimes that were committed. But the Browns felt the opposite. They wanted to keep the story private. Maybe they don't care who's the hero, who's the NPC, they don't care who makes money, who doesn't make money they just don't want to be re-traumatized by having the story brought up again and having to relive it out again. So in that instance, it's not criminal versus victim. It's not even third party versus victim. It's literally two different victims of the same crime dealing with it in two different ways, feeling as though justice should be vetted out in two different ways. How do we decide who's correct there?
1: That is so difficult to say. And I think in this particular instance, it comes down to the story as it was being told in real time and how Ron Goldman was kind of lost in the narrative because he was just, you know, collateral damage. If if he hadn't been there, Nicole Brown would have still died. Um, he just was wrong place, wrong time in the actual offense of the crime itself. The central Part of the story when it was happening was OJ and Nicole. And Ron's story, who he was as a person, did not get really any attention. So I can see that there's a motivation now to have more ownership over the story and not let him be lost in the history of it. And for Nicole Brown's family, they were exposed to the entire world through this process in a way it was probably enough for a lifetime. So how do you kind of recalibrate whose story is being focused upon 30 years later, when there are two competing goals for people who have like an equal stake in the whole thing?
0: I can't, I don't know. Well, and also, at least from a legal perspective, and, and we're talking about I suppose, two different things. We're talking about legally what should be allowed, and then we're talking about, as you put it, <laughs> that icky feeling, right? Morally what should be allowed or what's what's okay or what's not okay. And if at least legally, the reason why a son of Sam law would be struck down is that a government should allow for freedom of speech and a government should allow as a default for people to make money however they can and only encroach on that on very extreme instances, if a killer is trying to make money, okay, maybe the crime invalidates their right to do that. Or maybe they're just so malicious with the telling of the story that that loses them their First Amendment right to freedom of speech. But in this case, if you are also a victim and you're not telling the story maliciously, uh, whether another victim likes it or doesn't like it, you have the right to tell the story and you have the right to make money off of it. Putting myself
1: into this situation, if I were Nicole Brown's family and the book was going to be published as much as I didn't want it to be, I feel like the only actual recourse I would have at this point would probably be to maybe put out a biography of Nicole Brown and talk about who she was when she was alive, absent the entire murder itself and Try to retain some ownership of the story and refocus onto the positive aspects of her life. If the book's coming out, have you heard of the Streisand effect? Mm-mm. So the story behind the Streisand effect is that Barbara Streisand had some pictures of her home published online somewhere and she wanted them taken down. And because she made such a big fuss about it, everyone's like, let's go look at the pictures of Barbara Streisand's house. So the Streisand effect is the more you try to get people to not look at a thing, the more inclined people are going to be to go look at the thing, right? So the more of a, of a fight Nicole Brown's family may be putting up to get this book not published, the more people may want to read it. Mm. Now, it's their right to say, I don't want this book published. It's bad. Let's not do it. But that probably feeds into like how many people are potentially interested in reading it, like what juicy details are in there that they don't want us to know about, et cetera.
0: You know what I really hope that people don't see? What's that? I really hope that nobody goes and looks at our Facebook or our Twitter accounts at Indubitably Pod. Please don't go. Please don't visit. This is a little embarrassing for you. Am I am I using the Streisand effect correctly?
1: I think in order to effectively wield the Streisand effect to get you attention deliberately, you have to probably have theme in the neighborhood of Barbara Streisand to begin with.
0: Oh my God. Back to this whole you can't incite a resurrection because you don't have a big enough following. You're not Barbara Streisand. Okay, Kelly, I get it.
1: Well, anyway, yes, we have a Twitter and Facebook at IndubitablyPod, and it would be so embarrassing if people went and looked at it.
0: All sorts of horrible things there. Okay, so obviously this retelling of the story by especially the criminal feels wrong, but since we're starting to talk about freedom of speech and when we have it as a right, a fundamental right, and when the government is allowed to take it away, let's look at this issue a bit more specifically because this was the reason that the original implementation of the Son of Sam laws was struck down. Basically, freedom of speech. We can say whatever we want, and we don't have an obligation to give a shit about how other people feel. We can say all sorts of messed up things. For example, as we started the episode, Trump can lie about election fraud. Hate speech is protected speech. I can say awful things about any person or or group of people that I want. So the question is what makes this uniquely awful? to where it could be legislated against.
1: If there is demonstrable harm from speech, that's when it ceases to be protected, correct? Speech that incites a violent uh, attack or chaos, speech that leads to the death of people is not
0: protected. Right, but I, I don't, at least I can't think of any case in which the harm would be hurt feelings. Or, or the harm would be emotional trauma?
1: Well, emotional trauma can be pretty damaging and and have a physical effect to it as well. I think the way that the societal regard for emotional trauma and eventually the legal regard for emotional trauma is changing may ultimately lead to more decisions where that's enough of a damage to consider it something criminal. We're not there yet, I don't think, but emotions are generally downplayed in importance compared to things like physical trauma, like injury and death. But we're starting to understand that that might be a bigger problem than previously understood. So if, if speech gets to that point where there is actual damage caused by it, and if we can prove it, legally then i'd say that that is the bright line by which it can be regulated and people can no longer publish or make money off of publishing stories like this
0: sticks and stones kelly some of you believe that emotions are damaging
1: you know we are children of the 80s and we were raised in a society that was like so not in tune with emotional intelligence that parents had to be reminded that they had children every day Like, it's 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are?
0: (laughs) Well, some of us still think that being offended is a choice.
1: I, I think future generations have a little bit more emotional intelligence than perhaps you and I do. Just saying.
0: They're just getting babied. Okay. So you're saying that this might be, you know, kind of on the forefront of establishing a precedence that we might expand the definition of direct harm and where the state can, can step in and regulate based on that.
1: Possibly. I'd like to see a a society that regards emotional harm as being a more serious offense than it is currently.
0: Hmm. That's a whole nother debate that might be interesting. Hmm. I think another thing that makes this uniquely awful is that it's, it's attached to a crime going back to hate speech. Hate speech by itself is not a crime, but hate speech can be, a modifier for the punishment that's vetted out for a crime. A regular quote-unquote crime can be elevated to a hate crime, and the way you would determine that oftentimes is with what kind of speech surrounds that person and their engagement with the world. So maybe there is a precedent there where speech can at least upgrade the punishment or the severity of a crime.
1: Right, but we're still looking at that in the instance of A crime where something tangible happens that recently happened in Portland. There's a man who's on trial right now for stabbing two teenagers of color on public transit after shouting racial epithets at them. So he is up on hate crime charges for it. If he had just stabbed them without saying anything, it would be a different degree of punishment. That speech is like a multiplier.
0: So their words attached to a crime now all of a sudden those words are not protected anymore and then here again by definition if we're talking about criminals trying to cash in on the crimes that they've committed maybe it justifies an increased punishment and in this case that increased punishment would be the removal of the right to profit off of your words
1: very possibly i think it is worth noting that the way that America views free speech is also vastly different than a lot of other countries do as well. And that's not to say that one country's version of it is substantially better than another country's, but America tends to view pretty much everything as protected speech except for a few things in pretty narrow parameters. But if you look at other countries like Germany, for instance, where they cannot, you cannot publish pro Nazi propaganda at all. Even if it does not harm anybody currently, it could re traumatize people. And, you know, Holocaust denial is illegal and like Nazi marches are illegal, even though they do not physically harm people in a lot of cases. The definition of what harm constitutes in Germany as it relates to that kind of speech is broader than it would be in the United States. And perhaps publishing stories like If I Did It, wouldn't be legal in a country like Germany. And it's perfectly legal here.
0: Another aspect to consider, if we're saying that removal of your right to profit off of retelling of events is tied to your crime and therefore your sentence, what about when your sentence is over? Once you've been released from prison and then presumably you've been absolved of your crime, should you be allowed to tell the story then? And if not, does that violate another right to reasonable punishment?
1: First, we have to determine if we think serving a prison sentence actually absolves you of your crime. I think the common understanding is, yeah, absolutely. Except for when you look at all of the ways in which people are permanently punished for committing crimes. Like in a lot of states, you have to indicate if you have a felony conviction on job applications. In a lot of states, you cannot vote if you're a felon, even though you quote unquote paid your debt to society.
0: Hmm. I guess there's at least a reasonable argument where this would fall under that same realm of possibility.
1: If we agree that it is okay to punish felons permanently in some regard, then that might also include their ability to profit from telling the stories about the crimes that they committed. Or, and this is another debate entirely probably. If you've gotten out of jail, you're no longer in the justice system should you have a clean slate entirely. And would that mean also that you can publish and make money off of the story?
0: At the same time, though, these especially the famous criminals. And that's really what we're talking about, because if they're not famous, if there's no interest to the story, it's going to be hard for them to make money off of it. So for these really famous crimes and perpetrators the negative aspects of notoriety are going to affect them for life. Are we just going to leave them out to dry, dealing with all of the negative repercussions of their actions, even past the time where their sentence is complete, and not give them any access to balance that out, any access to counteract that?
1: They should have thought about that before they committed a crime. They should have thought about the crime, the outcome, and they should think about which state they're doing it in and whether or not they can profit off of it later. Another component of this issue might have to include what drives people to commit crimes at all in the first place. And there are a lot of varying factors that come into play when somebody violates the law. But some of the more dramatic cases that we've seen emerge publicly have spawned kind of a phenomenon where people are doing horrible things in part to get attention for doing the horrible things. You know, there are crimes of passion. There are stated goals, you know, financial or revenge or what have you. But more and more with the amount of publicity that comes around sensational crime, you know, the true crime phenomenon for starters, uh, fame seeking is a pretty big motivator for some of the more horrific things like school shootings that we've seen. And what feeds into the fame seeking can be the potential for continued notoriety and eventual profit off of selling
0: those stories. Yeah, I could see two different scenarios where that would be true. I don't think anybody necessarily (laughs) is sitting in the room and thinking, okay, I just quit my job today. My rent's gonna be due. How am I gonna make money to pay rent? But I could see one copycat criminals who have seen somebody else achieve fame through various means, and they think perhaps that they could tap into that same thing. Or a lot of these criminals, you know, Son of Sam, for example, who we're talking about, were serial killers, right? Repetitive criminals. And maybe they didn't think about any of this beforehand, but after they committed one or two crimes, after they killed one or two people, and they started to get the attention, then it becomes a motivating factor to continue these actions.
1: And it's important to note that for people who feed into the the behavior in part to get attention or continued attention from it is that there are many factors that make that a an attractive choice, but not necessarily a rational choice. A lot of the people who do this tend to be social outcasts are people who are not doing extremely well financially or people who have psychological issues that are not being addressed appropriately. And when those factors come into play, it changes the risk calculus and it changes the the motivation in a way that, you know, people who are probably doing a little bit better and have better social support systems would not consider that a viable option. But it becomes an attractive option if you think you've got nothing left to lose.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So it seems for for the most part, even me, who's typically libertarian to a certain degree, people should do whatever they want, be allowed to do whatever they want. The government can leave me alone, get off my lawn. Even for me, this is probably messed up, people being able to tell stories about how they victimized others and make money off of it. And certainly, we don't want to be providing people an incentive to motivate them to commit a crime or continue to commit crimes, but here's another challenge for laws like this: How far do we take this? What what if a person wants to write about something unrelated to the crime? What if like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, he wanted to write, but not about his crimes? What if he wanted to write, I don't know, a memoir about butterflies? And it would be really hard to separate out. Why are people buying this new? publication? Is it because they're really interested in the migration paths of the Monarch Butterfly, or because they want this thing that was published by the Unabomber? Should he not be allowed to profit off of his Book of Butterflies?
1: Then you have to determine how good is the Book of Butterflies, absent the shock value of having that particular author's name on the cover. I suppose you'd have to take the book and have it market tested with his name off of it and, and see if it actually stands on its own merits. And who's got the time for that?
0: <laughs> okay. So do we ban him from writing on anything?
1: Not from writing, of course, but the ability to profit, ugh, that's that's a difficult one. You know, there are oftentimes other skills that people possess and they just happen to be criminals as well. They they can be writers or artists or musicians in their own right.
0: It gets really fuzzy.
1: I don't like fuzzy things, except for cats. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, another area where it gets fuzzy is, do you know the term murderabilia?
1: Oh, yes. You'll recall I did spend a good deal of time getting into true crime a few years ago.
0: <laughs> okay, maybe you should explain what murderabilia is then.
1: It's it's a fascination with trying to collect actual artifacts or source materials that have something to do specifically with the crimes that are notable. So you probably cannot like get a murder weapon most of the time. Maybe if it was like a really old murder it happened a couple of centuries ago, there might be some actual weaponry that you could source through an auction house.
0: A toothbrush.
1: Oh, yeah, like clothing that somebody wore who was, a, who was a person involved in the crime in some capacity. Having some sort of tangible link to the crime.
0: I have an item. No. Which I think is interesting here. I don't have one. I'm about to bring up one.
1: I was going to get so disappointed in you.
0: <laughs> I have an idea about an item that is interesting for this conversation. You know John Wayne Gacy?
1: The, the killer clown.
0: Yes. You remember last year's Halloween episode, what our topic was?
1: Mm, yeah, we were going through whether evil was something kind of like inherent or if it was created or the, a discussion on
0: uh, villains. Mm-hmm. And my answer at the end of this to the question of does evil exist? Yes. Clowns, specifically John Wayne Gacy, is the epitome of evil.
1: And you thought all clowns, regardless of whether it was a serial killer dressing up as a clown, all clowns were bad.
0: Yeah, and I still stand by that. Um, (laughs) And and also, we need ideas for this year's Halloween special, which is coming up now. Uh, So if you have requests or suggestion for what we cover this year, let us know. But here's the point: John Wayne Gacy was selling paintings of clowns that brought in. Up to $20,000 at auction. Technically, it's not necessarily about any particular crime that he committed.
1: Yeah, I don't think he committed any of his crimes while in clown garb. He was literally like a performer at children's birthday parties, dressing as a clown.
0: All right. So he was a professional clown before the murders and then is painting clowns after the murders should he not be allowed to make money off of that? Should he not be allowed to go back to his old job were he to have been released from prison?
1: Well, I don't think he should be around children. (laughs) So (laughs) for starters, no on that count. But whether he can paint clowns and sell them, he was kind of known for the juxtaposition between his clown persona and then the persona he occupied when he was committing Mm -hmm. crimes. So the The clown identity became kind of linked to his criminal identity because of that contrast. So it feels gross, ethically icky. That's going to be the the phrase of the day for me. It feels gross that he would try to capitalize on that because it was so notable during the time of the, the murders and his conviction and what have you. But I don't see that there's a reasonable way to prevent him from making money off of that does it re-traumatize his victims or his victims families if he sells clown paintings they don't technically have anything to do with the murder like if i did it does
0: right and i guess here's the thing on a debate show we like to have an answer we like things to be black or white but so oftentimes they're not and so Maybe the new iteration of the Son of Sam laws makes a lot of sense. Where, as opposed to just point blank banning people from publishing or profiting, what is allowed is victims to bring a suit to a judge who is able to make decisions on a case by case basis. Maybe a book about butterflies is allowed, maybe a painting of a clown. When the only reason that painting is selling is because you are known as the insane clown killer, uh, should not be allowed. As much as we would like things to be clean cut, maybe having this judicial discretion is a pretty good way of arbitrating this and still upholding some of the First Amendment rights that the Supreme Court was worried about with the initial implementation of the Son of Sam laws.
1: What I think would be a more impactful way for us to practically affect how criminals behave after the fact with publishing or selling art or what have you is that we just take out the market for it altogether. We don't have to involve the legal system. We don't have to have judges make determinations on a case-by-case basis. We don't have to have son of Sam laws in any iteration. If there is no audience for the type of things that are being produced by criminals where they're trying to make a profit. There's no profit motive. What are they going to do?
0: Right. <laughs> they can't make money if we don't buy it. More or less, yeah. But again, like we talked about in the true crime episode, it's easy for us to sit here this entire episode and, and tell these criminals, murderers, how bad they are. But we're fascinated in that stuff. And so, at a certain point, if we're talking about re victimization, sure, we didn't commit the initial crime. But at the point where somebody is giving John Wayne Gacy, or at least buying his painting for $20,000, at the point where Netflix can put up Inventing Anna and know that there's going to be an audience for it, at the point where publishers know that the general public are going to consume rapidly the son of Sam story, we didn't commit the initial crime, but we're certainly not hesitating to involve ourselves in the re-traumatizing of victims or their families.
1: But we can, we can involve ourselves in the prevention of that being a viable market. And, And there's, there's some evidence that that's happening in Canada. There was a convicted serial killer who had a book published and was being sold on Amazon And there was so much outrage at the fact that it was being marketed and sold on Amazon that enough momentum got behind the outcry against Amazon that it was removed from their virtual shelves. So they can continue to try it. They can publish, they can have book deals. And if people still want to buy it, they can, sure. But the less attractive that option becomes, the more of an outcry that we make whenever that happens the more we vilify the people who buy the killer clown paintings perhaps that's going to have an impact on how people behave in the marketplace too maybe fewer networks and and streaming services will put out specialty mini series about criminals maybe but we have to start chipping away at it gradually and building momentum around this opinion that this is so wrong that we should Stop putting money into it.
0: So moral of the story is don't pay OJ.
1: Well, then what's he going to do? Break into places and steal back memorabilia? Oh, wait, he already did that.
0: Or he could just keep hiding behind Florida's uh, bankruptcy laws and collect his $20,000 a month pension from the NFL.
1: What would you even do with $20,000 a month?
0: Buy a clown painting.
1: A clown painting a month. (laughs)
0: okay so we agree that all this is horrible but kelly hmm if you were gonna buy a book or watch a movie written by a criminal which criminal would it be
1: is this where i go all noble and go like mlk
0: oh my god (laughs) if you want to be a liar
1: i was thinking about this and i'm kind of fascinated i you know i I've, i've been fascinated with true crime even though i do not pay much attention to it anymore. It's still, it's hard to look away from. And I think one of the things that I'm the most fascinated by are the ways that people get swept up into cults because I feel like I would be able to resist programming in a cult. I feel like I'm way too cynical to believe the bullshit that uh, new recruits get fed and and what have you. So I think reading a book by someone like... um, Squeaky from or somebody else who was in the Manson family would be pretty interesting, especially anybody who still is like a diehard Charlie is the best thing that ever happened type of person just to kind of understand their mindset.
0: Hmm. Interesting. He's definitely an interesting choice.
1: What about you? Do you have a favorite criminal that you want to throw your money at?
0: Are you sure you want to hear mine? Mine is terrifying. All right. Let's hear it. Just just the name might send you running from the room.
1: I don't run anywhere.
0: My person, I would want to talk to them, would be the Zodiac Killer. They would charge you $20,000 to talk
1: to them. It has to be the profit motive because that's what we're talking about today. But we don't even know who the Zodiac
0: Killer is. I just don't know if I could stay in a room with Ted Cruz for that long.
1: Oh, come on. You think it's him? <laughs>
0: No, but I do think it would be cool to interview somebody who not only had a wild crime, but also never got caught.
1: Well, I think that being interviewed would kind of defeat the purpose
0: of evading justice. So good luck with that one. That'll be okay after he's elected president. Apparently, once that happens, you're not liable for crimes anymore. God, please never let Ted Cruz become president. (laughs) Tying a bow on the episode.